There is no shortcut to smart. Naval Ravikant. Welcome to A New Order of Things. I'm your host, Eddie Killian, and this is a weekly podcast where creating conversations and community around building winning individuals and organizations is our goal. Hello. This week, we're continuing to define the terms and ideas that are foundational to the processes of a new order of things. Conveniently, Naval Ravikant had a presence in our last episode, number four, The Right Questions, and his ideas will grace us again in this one. This week's topic is an idea and process that I did not know had a title for quite some time. It's just something I had always done. Then I found Cal Newport. And in his book from 2012, So Good They Can't Ignore You, subtitled Why Skills Trump Passion for the Quest for Work You Love, where he discusses the idea of what he calls career capital. Because I found Cal Newport's definition of these prior to the other ideas that we'll be discussing shortly, I call this process by Cal's chosen verbiage. Thus, the title of this episode, Career Capital. In the book, Newport investigates his hypothesis that the idea and advice to follow your passion might be terrible advice when looking for a career. He calls this the passion hypothesis and defines it as the key to occupational happiness is to figure out what you are passionate about and find a job that matches that passion. In short, what can the world, or this job, offer me? His research finds that time and again, this advice is poor. He goes on in his search to define and describe a differing process. He calls this the craftsman mindset. Cal states, The career capital theory of great work. Number one, the traits that define great work are rare and valuable. Two, Supply and demand says that if you want these traits, you need rare and valuable skills you can offer as your career capital. Three, the craftsman mindset, with its relentless focus on becoming so good they can't ignore you, is a strategy well-suited for acquiring career capital. This is why it trumps the passion mindset if your goal is to create work you love. The difference between passion and craftsman? In short, those utilizing passion ask, what can the world or this job offer me? Those with the craftsman mindset ask, what can I offer the world or this job? Here's a simplified example. A career seeker states, I love houseplants, so I should work with plants. So I'm going to go work at a nursery. Question, how does a love of potted plants in your window transmit to being out of doors in all kinds of weather, lifting actual tons of potting mix, fertilizer, and manure every day? And can you perform safe and responsible driving of forklifts and backhoes? Can you drive delivery trucks? Can you provide nonstop customer service? What about your minimal knowledge of plants, apart from Bob, your potted window-bound nasturnum? Does your affinity for Bob make you a valuable collection of skills for the nursery? Or are you going to figure out in short order that your passion is not enough to bring value to the establishment? But what if we put the craftsman mindset to work? 
The same career seeker decides they love plants and want to work at a nursery. So, they take courses and read books about plants and their needs. They peruse nurseries in the area on weekends watching to see how they merchandise. Or this person reaches out to a friend that has a farm and, with the supply of a small amount of beer, is taught how to drive tractors and forklifts. The person reads up on marketing and sales techniques and puts them to use in interactions at their current workplace, school, or organization, with their family, with friends, everywhere. It builds some muscle. They join a gym or swing a kettlebell a lot, or figure out a way of doing it on the cheap. Now, they go and apply to the nursery. They list what they know and have experience in on their application. In other words, they let the owner slash manager, or whoever's reading their application, know what effort has been put into being able to offer them and the world, which is their customers, a great worker who takes pride in being so good they can't be ignored. Naval Ravikant, in his tweet storm titled How to Get Rich, discusses what he calls specific knowledge. In this tweet storm and the transcripts of others that he's had in conversations, Naval has had a collection called The Almanac of Naval Ravikant, compiled and published by Eric Jorgensen. In this, Naval tweeted, Become the best in the world at what you do. Keep redefining what you do until this is true. Find and build specific knowledge. Sounds a lot like the craftsman mindset, doesn't it? Here's the, the details of his ideas. Sales skills are a form of specific knowledge. There's such a thing as a natural in sales. You run into them all the time in startups and venture capital. And when you meet someone who is a natural at sales, you just know they're amazing. They're really good at what they do. And that is a form of specific knowledge. Obviously, they learned somewhere, but they didn't learn it in a classroom setting. They learned probably in their childhood in the schoolyard, or they learned negotiating with their parents, or maybe there is some little genetic component in the DNA. But you can improve sales skills. You can read Robert Caldini, or go to a sales training seminar. You can do door-to-door -door sales. It is brutal, but it will train you very quickly, and you can definitely improve your sales skills. He tweeted again, specific knowledge cannot be taught, but it can be learned. And Vol goes on. When I talk about specific knowledge, I mean figure out what you were doing as a kid or teenager almost effortlessly. Something you didn't even consider a skill, but people around you noticed. Your mother or your best friend growing up would know. Examples of what your specific knowledge could be. Sales skills, musical talents with the ability to pick up any instrument. An obsessive personality. You dive into things and remember them quickly. Love for science fiction. You were into reading sci-fi, which means you absorb a lot of knowledge very quickly. Playing a lot of games. You understand game theory pretty well. Gossiping and digging into your friend network. Uh, that might make you a very interesting journalist. The specific knowledge is sort of this weird combination of unique traits from your DNA, your unique upbringing, and your response to it. It's almost baked into your personality and your identity. And then you hone it. Naval continues. No one can compete with you on being you. And most of life is a search for who and what needs you the most. For example, 
in the States. I love to read and I love technology. I learn very quickly and I get bored fast. If I had gone into a profession where I was required to tunnel down for 20 years into the same topic, it wouldn't have worked. I'm in venture investing, which requires me to come up to speed very quickly, very quickly on new technologies. And he states, I'm rewarded for getting bored because new technologies come along. It matches up pretty well with my specific knowledge and skill sets. He continues, I wanted to be a scientist. This is where a lot of my moral hierarchy comes from. I view scientists as being at the top of the production chain for humanity. The group of scientists who have made real breakthroughs and contributions probably added more to human society, I think, than any other class of human beings. Not to take away anything from art or politics or engineering or business, but without science, we'd still be scrambling in the dirt and fighting for sticks and trying to start fires. He states, society, business, and money are downstream from technology, which is itself downstream from science. Science applied is the engine of humanity. And a corollary thought, he states, is applied scientists are the most powerful people in the world. And this will be more obvious in the coming years. He tells a little story. My whole value system was built around scientists, and I wanted to be a great scientist. But when I actually look back at what I was uniquely good at and what I ended up spending my time doing, it was more around making money, tinkering with technology, and selling people on things, explaining things, and talking to people. I have some sales skills, which is a form of specific knowledge. I have some analytical skills on how to make money. And I have this ability to absorb data, obsess about it, and break it down. That is a specific skill that I have. I also love tinkering with technology, and all of this stuff feels like play to me, but it looks like work to others. There are other people to whom these things would be hard or pithy, and selling ideas? Well, if you're not really good at it, or if you're not really into it, maybe it's not your thing. Focus on the thing that you are really into. The first person to actually point out my real specific knowledge was my mother. She did it as an aside. The first person to actually point out my real specific knowledge was my mother. She did it as an aside, talking from the kitchen. And she said it when I was 15 or 16 years old. I was telling a friend of mine that I wanted to be an astrophysicist. And she said, no, you're going to be into business. And I was like, what, mom? I was like, what? My mom telling me I'm going to be in business? I'm going to be an astrophysicist. Mom doesn't know what she's talking about. But mom knew exactly what she was talking about. Naval continues. Specific knowledge is found much more by pursuing your innate talents, your genuine curiosity, and your passion. It's not by going to school for whatever is the hottest job. It's not by going into whatever field investors say is the hottest. Very often, specific knowledge is at the edge of knowledge. It's also stuff that's only now being figured out, or is really hard to figure out. If you're not 100% into it, somebody else who is 100% into it will outperform you. And they won't just outperform you by a little bit. They'll outperform you by a lot, because now we're operating the domain of ideas. Compound interest really applies and leverage really applies. He states, the internet has massively broadened the possible space of careers. 
Most people haven't even figured this out yet. He details this out. You can go on the internet and you can find your audience. You can build a business and create a product and build wealth and make people happy just uniquely expressing yourself through the internet. The internet enables any niche interest as long as the best person at it is to scale it out. And the great news is because every human is different, everyone is at the best at something, being themselves. Naval continues, Another tweet I had that is worth weaving in but didn't go into the how to get rich tweet storm was very simple. Escape competition through authenticity. Basically, when you're competing with people, it's because you're copying them. It's because you're trying to do the same thing. But every human is different. Don't copy. If you are fundamentally building and marketing something that is an extension of who you are, no one can compete with you on that. Who's going to compete with Joe Rogan or Scott Adams? We'll talk about Scott in a little bit. It's impossible. Is somebody else going to come along and write a better Dilbert? No. Is someone going to compete with Bill Watterson or and create a better Calvin and Hobbes? No. They are being authentic. The best jobs are neither decreed nor degreed. They are creative expressions of continuous learners in free markets, tweeted Naval. The most important skill, Naval states, for getting rich is becoming a perpetual learner. This circles us around to Cal Newport's craftsman mindset. You have to know how to learn anything you want to learn. The old model of making money is going to school for four years, getting your degree, and working as a professional for 30 years. But things change fast now. Now you have to come up to speed on a new profession within nine months, and it's obsolete four years later. But within those three productive years, you can get very wealthy. It's much more important today to be able to become an expert in a brand new field in 9 to 12 months than to have studied the quote right thing a long time ago. You really care about having studied the foundations, so you're not scared of any book. If you go to the library and there's a book you cannot read, you have to dig down and say, what is the foundation required for me to learn this? Foundations are super important. He continues, Basic arithmetic and numeracy are way more important in life than doing calculus. Similarly, being able to convey yourself simply using ordinary English words is far more important than being able to write poetry. Having an extensive vocabulary or speaking seven different foreign languages. Knowing how to be persuasive when speaking is far more important than being an expert digital marketer or click optimizer. Foundations are key. It's much better to be at 9 out of 10 or 10 out of 10 on foundations than to try and get super deep into the little things. You do need to be deep in something because otherwise you'll be a mile wide and an inch deep and you won't get what you want out of life. You can only achieve mastery in one or two things. It's usually things you're obsessed about. So Naval pointed out a little little blurb about Scott Adams, the creator of Dilbert, and how no one would be smart to compete with him in the cartoon space. Interestingly, Adams, of Dilbert fame, wrote the following June 20th, 2007 in his Dilbert blog entry, titled Career Advice. The link to this will be available within the transcript of this episode at my website and in the show notes below. I will read Scott's post to you now. Career Advice Last night, I met a script supervisor. She works with directors to make sure a movie has the right continuity, 
The one scene fits the next. It's a fascinating job, hobnobbing with top directors, writers, and celebrities. No two assignments are the same. How do you get that kind of career? She had earned a degree in anthropology and just, quote, fell into it through a series of events. I know the feeling. I majored in economics, got an MBA, worked at a bank, and then a phone company and became a cartoonist. For every person who studies something specific, such as law or medicine, and actually ended up in that sort of career, I think there are five who let chance pick their careers. And that works out more often than you think, but you can't recommend it as a career strategy. Instead, I recommend a general formula for success. Allow me to explain. If you want an average successful life, it doesn't take much planning. Just stay out of trouble, go to school, and apply for jobs you like. But if you want something extraordinary, you have two paths. Number one, become the best at one specific thing. Or number two, become very good, the top 25%, at two or more things. The first strategy is difficult to the point of near impossibility. Few people ever play in the NBA or make a platinum album. I don't recommend anyone even try. Adams continues. The second strategy is fairly easy. Everyone has at least a few areas in which they could be in the top 25% with some effort. In my case, I can draw better than most people, but I'm hardly an artist. And I'm not any funnier than the average stand-up comedian who never makes it big, but I'm funnier than most. The magic is that few people can draw well and write jokes. It's the combination of the two that makes what I do so rare. And when you add in my business background, suddenly I had a topic that few cartoonists could hope to understand without living it. I always advise young people to become good public speakers, the top 25%. Anyone can do it with practice. If you add that talent to any other, suddenly you're the boss of the people who have only one skill. Or get a degree in business on top of your engineering degree, law degree, medical degree, science degree, or whatever. Suddenly you're in charge. Or maybe you're starting your own company using your combined knowledge. Capitalism rewards things that are both rare and valuable. You make yourself rare by combining two or more pretty goods until no one else has your mix. I didn't spend much time with the script supervisor, but it was obvious that her verbal and writing skills were in the top tier as well as her people skills. I'm guessing she has a high attention to detail and perhaps a few other skills in the mix. Probably none of those skills are best in the world, but together they make a strong package. And apparently, she's been in high demand for decades. At least one of the skills in your mixture should involve communication, whether written or verbal. And it could be as simple as learning how to sell more effectively than 75% of the world. That's one. Now, add to whatever your passion is. Be careful there. And you have two, because that's the thing you'll easily put enough energy into to reach the top 25%. And if you have an aptitude for a third skill, perhaps business or public speaking, develop that too. It sounds like generic advice, but you'd be hard-pressed to find any successful person who didn't have about three skills in the top 25%. Adams ends his post with a f one final question. What are your three? This post by Adams predates Newport's book, So Good They Can't Ignore You, by about five years, and Ravikant's How to Get Rich Tweetstorm by 11 years. 
It's been referenced by Paul Graham of Y Combinator and Mark Andreessen of Andreessen Horowitz. It is definitely an idea that has reach. I'll leave you with this. Quit looking for the job that makes you happy. Start looking for the skills that make you so good they can't ignore you. Pick your three skills that you can excel in and get to it. Don't delay. Read Cal Newport's So Good They Can't Ignore You and subscribe to his podcast, Deep Questions. Read The Almanac of Naval Ravikant, also known as the Navalmanac, and subscribe to both Naval Ravikant and the book's editor, Eric Jorgensen's podcasts. Links to all this are in the show notes and on the links page on my website, eddiekillian.com. Join me next Tuesday as we continue to travel the path of what is difficult, perilous, and uncertain as we explore introducing a new order of things. I'm your host, Eddie Killian, and this concludes Episode 4. For exclusive content, notifications of each episode release, and sign up for my newsletter, head over to the website, eddiekillian.com. Click on the link in the show notes and join the conversation, or contact me directly at interesting at eddiekillian.com. A New Order of Things is available to listen to completely free on Apple, Spotify, and Google Podcasts and all the other places that you choose to find your podcasts. Don't forget to click subscribe and leave a quick review. Oh, and please share A New Order of Things with friends and coworkers. Make it a great day.